Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson. Welcome to The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me each week on The Crime Couch for a rollicking, intriguing tale. It'll be one heck of a journey. Brian Stook used to be a Victoria Police Sergeant. He's regarded as a hero and a survivor. Brian was one of seven police officers shot by the infamous Mad Max, or Pavel Marinov, which was his real name, in June 1985. The initial shooting of Brian and his partner, Senior Constable Peter Steele, sparked one of Victoria's largest manhunts ever. Brian was made a paraplegic as a result of being shot four times, but returned to work before retiring in 2007 after nearly 35 years' service. He was awarded the Victoria Police Star for his action on duty, and it's a real honour to be sitting with Brian on the crime couch. Hi, Brian. Why did you become a policeman? Yeah, thanks, Rochelle. Uh, before I joined the police force, I worked on the family farm and uh, for several years, and uh, as it became evident that the farm was going to be sold, uh, it was a situation where I, I needed to seek employment and I needed a job that was going to be secure for a, my family and to uh, enable me to contribute to society. Before that night, uh, Brian, on the 18th of June, 1985, what was your training? Training uh, was done at the older police academy for half my training and the other half was done at the new academy, police academy as it was then, So, which we spent five, five months in training in all at the time and uh, then graduated from the uh, police academy. That night, um, on the 18th of June, 1985, you and your partner were sitting off factories in Melbourne's southeast in Moorabbin. Now, just take yourself back to that time. How would you describe that location? What was it like doing that sort of work? The location was in a factory area in the Moorabbin area. And uh, over a long period of time, or a couple of years, this uh, a, an offender was breaking into factories in the Raven factory area, the Oakley factory area, the Huntingdale factory area, and uh, it was become evident, evident that uh, he needed to be caught. And so uh, it was decided that an operation will be would be mounted to try and uh, apprehend him. And uh, thus the procedure be began to select people to do it. So, and I was one of the ones selected. There were two teams from the Cheltenham Crime Cars and one team which I was a part of from the Cheltenham Uniform working as a special duties unit. So, Brian, in those days, how often would you do sort of like vehicle intercepts like the one that you did that night? 
Well, I guess we did intercepts similar on numerous occasions. Every time you pulled over a motorist, you never knew what might happen. So it was not an uncommon uh, event. And But uh, obviously, you, depending on what you're working on, you that might sort of lead you to where you should or how you should um, con- control yourself or what you can do at the time. So, yes. Up until that evening, on the 18th of June, 1985, how would you have considered yourself as a police member? Were you experienced in dealing with armed offenders? Or, you know, did you have a lot of that sort of experience? Probably not as much experience as what... Um, we could have had. Uh, I think uh, when I look back at it, you know, when we went through the police academy, we did boxing and uh, wrestling and and uh, pistol practice, and that was the extent of the training we had. So uh, I'd but never been fronted with, by an armed defender before, so I had no experience in that. But you had to be... Uh, uh, careful every time you did uh, approach someone because there was always the possibility that they they may be armed. So you just treated each case separately and uh, on the merits of each intercept. And I would imagine as you get experience in the job, you'd probably take less and less risks and more and more caution. Yes, you do. I think you, you learn with experience and the only way you're going to learn is to is to keep doing the job and uh, um, being um, more professional at it. You, you tend to pick your mark and know what the person is like, whether they're nervous, whether they're agitated. Uh, that's when you've got to be wary. Let's go back to that night, 18th of June, 1985. I believe it was in the middle of winter. How did that evening begin, Brian? Well, we were working on a shift from 9 o'clock at night till 5 in the morning. Uh, they were the hours that the crimes were being committed. And um, it was just... We'd spent two previous weeks um, without too much happening, although in the second week we narrowly missed catching him. Um, he was on the roof of a, a second-storey uh, factory uh, where there was an indoor cricket arena... And uh, unfortunately, uh, when we heard the alarms go off, we were there fairly quickly, but we had no backup and there was uh, a very huge building to try and cover. And unfortunately, he was able to get away. We had fire trucks there to get up onto the roof, but uh, we, we disturbed him, but he'd got away that second week. So the, on the July the 18th... Uh, we were down to uh, one unit only, which was us, as the two other crime cars had been taken off the uh, off the operation. So uh, we moved into a separate location to where we missed him the week before, into a position of one of the, where one of the other crimes cars had been positioned in Viking Court, Moravan, um, and we waited. And uh, it was just like any other night. It was pretty cold, and we'd taken a few little uh, bits and pieces to have a nibble if we got hungry during the shift. So uh, we were sort of bunkered down for the night, but Viking Court is 
indicates there's a dead end street and we're in the end in the police car uh, with our view straight down the court and on that particular occasion we noticed a, a Cortina, yellow Cortina pull into the court. It was one that we hadn't been, uh, been familiar with from sitting in the factory areas for the two previous weeks. So it looked suspicious and he just cruised around the court and drove out again and we uh, thought then that he could be a person of interest so we followed the car. We tried to uh, get a uniform car to pull the car over just to check the car out because at that stage we didn't want to give our cover away but there was no backup available, so it got to a situation where we'd followed him, and it was, it was he would have could, could have got could have got away. So we pulled him over at the side of the road and commenced to check him out. Okay, so you decided to take up and do the vehicle intercept, and and what did the license check reveal about this person driving? Did you have any clue about the driver's background? No clue at all about the driver's background. Uh, he produced a his, his driver's licence in the name of Max Clark. Uh, a a licence check and car check were carried out, which both checked out. Uh, we then started to check the car out and uh, checked under the seats and in the in the front. There was a few tools. Uh, he was a uh, tool maker, I think, by trade, and. Then we opened the boot up and we found a knotted rope in the boot. Mm-hmm. Now, because he had been breaking into buildings that were high and uh, maybe needed something for assistance, this was appeared to be the connection. So it was then that we decided that he should be searched. He was wearing a grey uh, uh, worker's ca- uh, coat. And uh, which was three quarter length uh, with big pockets, and we asked him to turn the pockets out. And uh, before he could do anything, he d- decided to break away and run away. And uh, instinctively, I gave chase, and uh, it was then that he uh, he was uh, probably five or ten meters in front of me that he turned around and uh, shot me, which threw me to the ground uh, and at that stage I thought well it was survival I could just I had to get cover so the police so car, what did you do then Brian the police car was nearby so I tried to get cover behind the police car but as I moved towards that or ran towards that uh, I shot again which sent me sprawling out into centre Dandenong Road so in the meantime, what had happened to your partner, uh, Senior Constable Peter Steele? Did he did he manage to back you up? Well, he intended to back me up as he had drawn his uh, revolver and uh, uh, before he had a chance to shoot it, he was shot through the shoulder, unbeknownst to me at that stage, and which threw his gun away. So all he could do was take cover. Uh, so I was left lying in the middle of Centre Dan on Road at that at that that stage, or in the centre of the traffic uh, lane uh, on the eastbound traffic lane, and uh, 
while I was lying there, uh, he shot me another twice while I was lying on the ground. And each time I thought, well, this has got to be it. Um, Unfortunately, it wasn't. And uh, at that stage, I I believe he'd fired all the shots he could. Uh, And with that, while I was lying on the road and Peter was hiding behind or shielding behind the the light pole, uh, he got in his car and drove away. You've been shot twice. You're lying on Centre Dandenong Road. Were you armed at that stage? I, I got told that you, at one stage, tried to... You would have tried to maybe even, you know... Um, that you were wearing an ankle holster, but you couldn't get to it. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I had an ankle holster on at that stage, and uh, because the uh, I believe it was the second shot that uh, sent me on the road was the one that paralysed me, uh, and uh, I also had shots shot through the right hand, and uh, which ruined it completely and I was unable to reach the uh, uh, my revolver so did this happen in real time like if you think about it now was it in slow-mo was it in how did it all appear in your mind Brian it it's it you you remember everything that that happened at the time but it would have only taken seconds probably for it to have happened. But uh, you remember each shot um, and there's a distinct gap between those shots or this appears to be, but you, you're you just aware that you know, at any time the one could be fatal. And what on earth was going through your mind as you're lying on the road? My first instinct was that I'm going to get run over. Uh, and so I, I called out to Peter, well, first of all, to drag me off the road, uh, which even though he was shot through the right shoulder, he managed to grab my leg and or legs and actually drag me actually to the side of the road. Then I said, call for assistance straight away. So that's when Peter got on the radio uh, we'd already had a licence check and a car check done on him, so we knew that um, D24 would have all those details. We actually still had uh, Marinoff, or, uh, or Max Clark, as he was known to us at that stage, we still had his driver's licence on, on, on the clipboard. So. I can't even imagine what on earth must have gone through your mind as you're lying on the road. Um, what went through your mind? What flashed through your mind... How did you manage to survive not knowing if he was going to come back or did you even think he was going to run over you or, or what did you think? I thought at the time that, that they were all possibilities but my main concern was then I'd, I felt I could not feel my legs and I, I thought, well, uh, that's, the, that's the end. At that stage I thought, well, I just hope for the worst and that I do uh, pass away because I, I couldn't face up to uh, living life as, uh, as, a, as, a, as paralysed. When the ambulance came, or, or who was the first person to attend you, you know, because I'd imagine that it would have gone through the police radio as well, 
Um, who was the first person on the scene? Yeah, well, the first person was on the scene was one of my good mates from the station who was uh, who was getting ready for night shift, and uh, he he was the first one to arrive. So he he cradled me in his arms and uh, held me and tried to reassure me. At that stage, everything was going to be all right. And I, uh, that was Sergeant Mel Davy, and I just said, Mel, Mel, just don't worry, just let me go, let me go. Uh, so we just waited then until other police came. I, I recognised other voices there. Recognised another um, policeman from Sandringham, uh, Sergeant Trevor Wilson, who was there at the time, saying this is a crime scene. Keep everybody out. Uh, and then the, then I just waited. My next recollection was being in the ambulance and uh, on the way to hospital. And when you were in the ambulance, what were they telling you, Brian? Well, in the ambulance, they were stripping me down, obviously, to find the wounds because I had numerous uh, entry and exit points. And they were saying, you, you, you'll be all right, you'll be all right. There's nothing through your back because the shot that paralysed me in, in, in under my uh, left arm and went across through my spine. But they were just looking at my spine from the... The rear saying, "I oh, know it looks everything looks okay," uh, but uh, that was about the last I can recall in the ambulance because I, I, I'm, at that stage I've, I've obviously lost consciousness and didn't know anything for a few days later. The police hunt had begun, um, hadn't it? Like Mad Max went home. The offender rearmed himself and changed his car. He then came into contact with Constable Graham Sace and his partner, Sergeant Ray Kirkwood. Um, do you know or do you recall what happened then? You obviously wouldn't have been conscious, but uh, I think Mad Max then tried to... Uh, they were in fear of their lives as well, weren't they? Yes, they'd been in a serious chase chasing him and then it wasn't until uh, Maranoffel... Clark, uh, his car uh, blew up that he swapped into after returning first uh, returning home and changing cars, mm. and uh, uh, as they drove towards him, he Clark got out of the car and ran towards them, actually firing shots at them and wounding uh, uh, Sergeant Clark, uh, Kirk, Kirkwood, and uh, and probably luckily. Uh, Graham Sace was uh, lucky to survive. He, as my understanding is, he got his hand out the window with his revolver and was firing shots back at him and uh, they both managed to survive luckily as well. And I know it's easy enough to make a joke like this, but often in these times, the police black sense of humour. I, I remember reading that uh, Ray uh, Kirkwood, Sergeant Ray Kirkwood, apparently quipped um, when he asked, when he got asked by a journalist, what did he learn? He said, "I've learnt that two coppers can't fit in an ashtray." Yeah, so I did hear that quip, and uh, I had to have a smile on my face. And uh, I think they were trying to get us all the cover they could get in that uh, footwell of the, the police car because that's what they had to do. Mad Max lay in waiting for his next meeting with police, didn't he? Because that was where he came into conference. Well, he spotted someone from the dog squad, is that right? Yes. Um, 
yeah, there were quite a few police at the scene at that stage and the dog squad had uh, tracked him to a position. Mm. Uh, but obviously he was in the sights of uh, Clark and uh, uh, Clark actually shot uh, uh, Gary uh, Morrell at that stage as well. So... Mm. Uh, uh, so the the numbers were counting up that he he dropped down at that stage, and uh, it's my understanding then that he hid in the roof of a house or a unit in that area, mm. and then uh, after a huge manhunt for him in Naval Park, uh, he had disappeared and wasn't uh, found again for some time later. It's now known that Clark was a Bulgarian army deserter and someone who had an enormous amount of experience in military weapons. What do you think motivated him now, Brian, so many years later? What do you, what do you think motivated him to shoot as many police as he did? I'm not, I can't really be sure what his motivation was because his, his MO... Uh, was that he was breaking into factories and taking virtually petty cash and small items, uh, nothing of great significance. And to go to the lengths that he went to, uh, he apparently had a shooting range under his house and he had numerous uh, guns and ammunition and uh, he was a terrorist in waiting, I feel, and uh, he's at that stage where he was breaking into the, these factories, his wife and daughter were, were, or daughters were overseas and uh, he was left on his loan, uh, left on his lonesome and uh, I think he got kicks out of doing it, I believe, and he was prepared to take any risk and, and do what he had to. Well, look, um, in the next interview, Brian, we'll talk about a little bit about the manhunt and what eventually happened to uh, Mad Max, a.k.a. Uh, Pavel Marinov. Thanks very much for sitting with me on the Crime Couch today, Brian. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Couch. <laughs>